Well, good morning, friends. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it now? And I want you to open to two places. First uh, Peter chapter 3, we're in a series in First Peter. And also I want you to open to John chapter 13. So put your finger in First Peter chapter 3 and also look up John 13. Now if you're using your phones, uh, we'll just assume you're looking at the Bible. You can Google John 13 first because that's the first place we're going to go. Uh, so Google John 13 if you need to use the table of contents. No shame in that. We're entering our time of teaching. We come together to sing praises to Jesus. We come together to study the Word of God, which we believe uh, has the Word of life in it. And so uh, now we'll spend uh, some time now teaching from this word. And uh, before I begin, I just want to spend a little bit of time praising Kathy, who was here with us last week. Um, I was just on the edge of my seat, riveted to everything that she had to say. Um, her words and her presence. Did you feel that? Her presence. Uh, she, for me, is a living example of the passage that she spoke on, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, uh, which is to be adorned with the internal beauty of Christ, and uh, that just came out of Kathy, and every time I've met with her and talked with her, uh, the same thing happens. Uh, she just truly radiates Christ everywhere she goes, and so I just wanted to, if you weren't here last week, uh, highlight four, the four principles that she talked about for cultivating an atmosphere, a tone of honor in your marriage. Um, uh, first, she said, see your spouse through God's eyes. We sang that first song that we might see people through God's eyes. So see your spouse through God's eyes. Second, she said, cherish the marriage covenant because it is a sacred commitment. Third, she says, within the marriage relationship, there remains this consecrated space meant only for God. And then finally, she says, in your marriage, live for a cause bigger than your marriage. And I just thought, man, these, these four principles, if you lived by these principles, you would, you would truly cultivate an atmosphere of honor in your marriage that would be a light to the world and people would ask you, what is it that, that makes you live in love like this? So I just wanted to make sure we heard those again. And if you haven't, uh, weren't here last week, go online and listen to Kathy's full sermon. It was just fantastic. Um, what an amazing disciple of Jesus she is. Um, I get the honor of actually going on a vision trip with her in May to see her ministry uh, on the ground uh, to refugees from the Middle East, and uh, so I'll report back on that uh, as well, and I know many of you are interested in uh, perhaps going on a vision or mission trip with her, and so um, let's keep talking about that. I know she wants to take a team of people, so uh, if you're interested in that, talk to me. Now, when Kathy and I got together and I asked her if she wanted to, uh, to teach here at Sedaris, um, the plan was always originally that, that she would preach on this passage from uh, more of a bent of a wife, having been married for 30 years, and then I would have a chance, because this is a challenging topic, to talk about it from the husband's perspective, and um, I really went back and forth this week, because I felt like she pretty much just nailed it, and there was not much left to be said, um, but after praying about it and thinking about it, um, <clears throat> I realized uh, that I don't think Kathy was hard enough on the husbands. <laughs> so I said, you know what? Let's take them to the woodshed a little bit here and uh, talk about verse 7. Uh, six verses in 1 Peter 3, 
uh, talk about wives, but then there's this one power-packed verse, verse 7, to the husband. So, so that's where I'm going to be today. And then I'm also, I decided to, to filter over into verses 8 through 12. So sort of start to take the step to uh, 8 through 12 is all about all Christians. So that's what I'm going to do today. Um, that, was, that was our plan originally, but I'm going to spend most of my time in verse 7, unpacking that a little bit more about what it looks like to be a godly husband. So what does it look like to be a godly husband? Now, you might not be a husband. Um, That's okay. You should know what it it looks like to be a godly husband. Or more generally, you could even say what it looks like to be a godly man. The answer is this. It's pretty simple. One who acts like Jesus in motivation and manner. That's what it means to be a godly husband. That's what it means to be a godly man. So, how did Jesus treat and interact with women? Read the Gospels. If you've never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, read the Gospels, and what you see is a truly revolutionary for a man in his position with his authority, the way he interacted with the women in his life. He showed them honor. He saw them as equals. He saw them from God's perspective. And in 2,000 years, we still have not reached the standard set by Jesus. Now, moreover, we can look at how Jesus treated everyone in his life, male or female, who he had authority and power over. And And the best place to look at that is his relationship with his closest friends and disciples, of whom Peter was one. Peter was one of the 12. So, how did Peter treat, or how did Jesus treat the 12? How did Jesus treat Peter? Now, these 12 men, although they were close with Jesus, close in age, close in um, proximity, Jesus would invite them into his inner circle, um, Jesus had enormous power over them because they knew his power. They'd seen him speak to the wind, speak to the waves. They'd seen him tell the lame to walk, the blind to see. He had power over sickness. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. So he had power. He had power over every other spiritual power. He had power over the religious and political leaders of his day. And they literally worshiped the ground that he walked on. And so in every way, here is a man with ultimate power and ultimate authority in the lives of these 12 men. And what was his posture towards them? Now we're in John 13. Let's read. This this will give you an idea of how Jesus used his power and his authority with the 12. John chapter 13 says this. This is just before Jesus' arrest, conviction, execution. It says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus was in Jerusalem for this Jewish festival known as the Passover. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, so he's gathered them in this upper room for supper. And listen to this, underline this in your Bible. When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Judas is the one who ultimately sold out Jesus. 
Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Guess what was on those feet? The worst human feces, dirt. And Jesus, the one with all the power, the one with all the authority, begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. And he came to Simon Peter, the writer of 1 Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he had said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was completely free to act however he wanted. And this is how he chose to use his power, his authority, and his strength to serve, to honor, and to bless those underneath him. So having witnessed this firsthand and not understanding it at the time, let's now turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and see what this same Peter, who didn't get it, who refused to have his feet washed, only begrudgingly did he allow his master to serve him. Let's see what he then says. And we've been talking about it in this whole section. So I want to read the whole section again because it's one large thought, okay, of how you are to be like Jesus in the way that you serve and act and honor others in the world, okay? So here we go. I'm going to read the whole section because this is sort of the end, the last sermon in this middle section about how you use your life to proclaim the beauty and the attractiveness of Jesus without words. And the next week we'll talk about once you've lived that way, there comes a time when words will be needed. But we're ending this, and Peter is going to show us through all of these very common positions in life of power and weakness, um, of authority and non-authority, how in, in, in the humdrum of life, in everyday life, how you can live so that you proclaim the beauty and attractiveness of Jesus. So let's read it again, and I'm going to read all the way 
from 2.11 all the way uh, to 3.12, okay? That's that. This is the whole thought section. So here we go. And you might remember it from a few weeks ago when we talked about these things. Beloved, verse 11, 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, as an, exa- or leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Likewise... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful, and that's that's mean your fear of God, when they see your fear of God and your pure conduct because of that, they might turn and consider Jesus. That's That's what he's saying. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle there means not pushy. Quiet means not quarrelsome. When in God's sight, uh, which in God's sight is, a pres- is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn in the past themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. Now here we get to the husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter watches the way Jesus serves and loves in the world, even to the point of death. And this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he writes to us, how we can follow the example of Christ. Now, in reading this passage, I am guessing that there were a few trigger words for you, right? That invoked an involuntary reaction to our 21st century American ears. But what if, what if it's these words, even if they might seem a bit distasteful to us now, are actually the medicine to cure any society? This might be hard to believe because we we sit here now and we forget that this country, this city is founded upon the unavoidable influence of these words. We can't see it now. But that's the case. If you're living in the Western world, Western ethics, Western systems of government, it's all founded on this book and these words of Peter. It's hard to see it. When these words were first penned by Peter and spoken in the congregation of God's people in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, this letter was passed around. The husbands in the room would have thought this was utter nonsense. Because in that society, women had little to no rights. Their positional value was closer to the slaves than it was to the husbands. When married, the legal rights of the woman transferred from her father to her husband. She was perpetually a daughter in that sense. A husband could divorce for any reason his wife with no recourse or continuing legal or financial responsibility to his wife. When a child was born to the wife, it became the sole legal property of the husband, meaning if the husband decided to put the baby out on the street to die or to be picked up by somebody, the the wife had no say in it. He did not need her consent, and this happened often. The wife was obligated to take her husband's social circle and religious preferences and worship and sacrifice to his gods. So we don't hear this as truly revolutionary, but the idea that Peter's saying, no, continue to worship Jesus even if your husband worships the Roman pantheon of gods. Oh, let there be light. (laughs) This was so revolutionary. Physical abuse against the wife was not a crime, but common and expected. Women were expected to be monogamous to their husbands, but the adultery of a husband was not a crime. It was actually expected. It was actually celebrated. Men were free to sleep with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and there was no social Pressure or shame associated with it. In fact, it was probably the opposite. If you weren't. This is the society into which these words were written. And it's so hard for us to get all the way back there. But to husbands, 
This was radical. This was revolutionary. And many men dared not become Christians because of what they'd have to give up. That's why in the early church, it was usually the wives that became Christians first. And then by, just as Peter said, their pure conduct, their reverence and fear and respect of God, the way that they loved even in the midst of their husband's own idiocy, (laughs) turned many husbands to the faith as well. And the society changed. The society changed in large part because of the witness of these women, the transformation that they had experienced, the courage to continue to worship Jesus even when it was hard, and to the husbands it became so undeniable that something was different. The beauty that they displayed turned them, and a society changed. Now, some of you, are, you might be saying in your head or arguing, or if you were to say the same thing outside of these walls, people uh, would argue this. They'd say, well, we shouldn't give Peter or the Bible credit for this change. Um, it would have ended up the same way even without Peter's words or this book guiding the society. But is that true? This is a very hard claim to prove. Why is that? Let's do a little bit of a thought experiment of our own. And rather than just looking at the past, now I want you to to think, are you thinking now? I want you to to project out in your mind the future. And And here's the premise. What if in this society we could effectively remove the influence of this piece of literature? If we could wipe it away? Many would like that. And the question is, if we in the next 50 years could just get rid of this book, in a thousand years, where would we be? In 3020, where would we be if we could just get rid of this book? Now, how do we come up with a prediction like that? What is a rational and honest way to predict such a future? We could employ what I would consider blind optimism and simply project the current trajectory out a thousand years. And we could say, if we just project it out a thousand years based on our current trajectory as a society, this is where we'd end up. Now, is that a fair way to do science? Or... Is there any evidence that we could use to try to base our predictions? Any evidence that we could use about how the removal of this book would influence a society or this book never being in a society, what ends that leads to? Well, Kathy mentioned last week that many husbands in Iran where she works treat their brides just in the weeks and months after marriage in a particular way. They beat them systematically and on purpose to remind them of the physical power that they have in the relationship. But that's Kathy's expertise, so you can go listen to her sermon on that. That's not mine. I am going to focus on a part of the world that's more familiar to me. I'm going to turn and look to the not-so-ancient civilization full of people with my same DNA. They probably didn't look much different than me. 
In fact, there's a town in Norway called Ivanger. Did you know this? Small town. So let's take a look at the Scandinavians. If you've been around me enough, you know I'm very proud of my heritage, but it's time to get real. It's time to be honest about my people. My mom's side, Scandinavian, Isaacson, my dad's side, Ivanger. So I've got a lot of Scandinavian blood. I'm, I'm terrified to do an actual DNA test because what if it found out that I was German or something, you know? <laughs> Which I could be. So we're just going to uh, continue to call myself a Scandinavian. But let's travel back now to a time in that civilization, in that society, when the Bible had yet to arrive on its shores. It had no influence in the society, and we have to go just a thousand years back. A thousand years back before this book ever set foot into that civilization. Now, we find that my same genetic heritage living in that age was often called, known as the age of the Vikings. And there's a legacy of the Viking people, you probably know about it, with regard to how they used power, and particularly power towards women. It is not good. In fact, it's disgusting when you think about it. It's often celebrated in movies and TV series and things now, but it's horrifying to think that those were my people. And so we look then today, and what is the reputation of those same people with that same DNA? The people of Norway and Sweden and Denmark and Finland, in that part of the world, what is their reputation today? Is it the same as the Vikings? The answer is no. That region of the world is known for equality. What happened? The people still look like me, but they don't think like the Vikings. What changed? Was it a sudden evolutionary leap of relational enlightenment and they realized, oh my gosh, we should stop doing this? Maybe. Or maybe it was a snowman named Olaf. <laughs> no, it wasn't a snowman. But it actually was a man named Olaf. I'm, I'm not joking with you. Look it up. Olaf Trugvason was the first Christian mini, uh, missionary to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Viking people. He set sail to Greenland to meet up with Leif Erikson, heard of him, who was on a conquest, introduced him to the word of God, to Jesus Christ. Leif Erikson became a Christian, and the rest is history. And what is that history? By the mid-11th century, most of Norway and most of Denmark was Christian. Now, a study of history shows that that part of the world became Christian for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Christianity flourished. If you know a Lutheran, it's because of Scandinavia. They sent a bunch of people to Minnesota, and then my grandparents moved to Seattle. I'm here because of that. I come out of that movement of God's people from that country to this country. 
My, my grandparents and my mother worshiped at University Lutheran in the U District. Now, I'm, I'm not making any statements about where that, that region of the world is today, okay? I, I, we, I don't think we can fairly say that, that deep, spirit-filled Christianity is thriving in Scandinavia. So I don't want to misrepresent. But like America, you cannot deny the foundations of Christianity for their current treatment of women, their current uh, expression of government, their current... You cannot just remove all that history of this book infiltrating the society. What you can do is look at what that society was like before this book arrived. It was rooted in the tenets of Christianity. It is rooted in the tenets of Christianity and not Vikingism. I'm not sure if that's a word. Now, fun fact, when I was born, my grandparents pushed my parents to name me Olaf. Now, that's a strong evangelist name, Olaf Ivanger. Sorry, sorry, parents, you got it wrong. Um, Would have liked to have that great name now that I know about Olaf Trugvason. (laughs) But in all seriousness... Is it fair to look back at a society so utterly unhonoring to women and ask what happened? Of course we cannot know what Scandinavia would have become if Peter's words never entered into the language of the society. We, we can't know that. We can't go back and redo history. We, we'll never know if Olaf had never gone and shared the gospel with Leif Erikson what that part of the world would be like. Of course we can't know it, but we should consider it. Now some might reply, well, that's too long ago to be a reliable basis for predicting the future. People change, things change, humans evolve, progress is inevitable. Perhaps. Are there any nearer history examples that we can draw from that give us a glimpse of what a society might look like if this book is removed? Successfully wiped from the social consciousness. Can you think of any? Don't think too far geographically from Scandinavia. Think cold. Think white people. You're right, if you're thinking the Soviet Union. Owning a Bible became illegal. Missionaries, for decades and decades, had to smuggle in Bibles. Nicky Gumbel at Alpha talks about doing that himself. It was their plan to systematically remove this text from the minds of their people. And you have to ask the question, is that a society that you want to live in? the society that resulted, particularly for citizens and people with little to no power. You say, well, that's complicated. That was bad leadership, bad ideas. I'm not sure we can pinpoint it to the removal of this book. That's absolutely true. But if you just do the same Historical, cultural analysis over and over and over again. 
do you start to see a pattern emerge to societies in which this book has influence versus societies where this book does not have influence? Where the words of Peter have influence versus societies where his words do not. Now, that's your job. (laughs) To do a deep consideration of those things. To look at other parts of the world where the Bible has had less impact. To see what kind of world that will be. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? And you do what, what I could call a cumulative case argument that I don't think can be blindly overlooked because it's evidence. And I think we must conclude that we owe a great debt to this book and in particular the words of Peter. Particularly the words we're about to look at when he speaks to husbands and the way they are to treat their wives. So let's look at that. All of that was a long way of saying be skeptical of the claims that, 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 this, that you'll hear, that you'll continue to hear over the next years and decades, that this world, our society here, will be, would be better off if we could just get rid of Christianity. Be very skeptical of those words. Consider them, but be very skeptical. And maybe even test these words in the laboratory of your life. Just like Kathy said, test them out. See if you live towards each other in this way, what kind of life, what kind of marriage would result? Because I think it's it's fair to say that when this text was rightly applied in societies and in marriages, for the history of the last 2,000 years, good things happened. Society's changed. So what are these powerful words that maybe when we read it the first time, didn't seem so powerful or so profound. What does this book, what does God say to husbands? What is he saying to you? Here we go, verse seven. We are going to dive deep into verse seven. It's only one verse, and you say, well, why only one? It's packed, so stick with me, okay? Verse seven, likewise, stop there, likewise. Okay, we saw likewise in chapter three, verse one, likewise, wives, do this, um, we saw, then we see here, likewise husbands. Now, what's going on here? Now, even the likewise in verse 1 is not saying likewise, because it's not referring to wives be like servants or slaves to your husbands. It's saying in a similar way. And so it's, I think it's clear here because um, as we talked about two weeks ago, we see the verb be subject three times in a row, and then we see it absent when it talks about husbands. Now, is that just a typo or a misprint or what? No, it's intentional because because what's going on here is Peter's going to be saying husbands are in a bit of a different situation in the society than women are, than citizens are, uh, than servants are, okay? So it's not likewise in the sense of be subject just just like wives, just like servants, just like citizens, but the likewise is in a similar way What's the similar way? Here's the similar way. Just like it's hard to be a citizen and to come voluntarily underneath an emperor or a ruler or a governor, just like that, it's going to be hard. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be uncontrollable. Sorry. 
<laughs> I was hearing the baby cry. Not uncontrollable. Uncomfortable. <laughs> That's funny. That's, I try really hard not just to play through, but, you know. Um, uh, uncomfortable. Frustrating. And here's the primary likewise that he's talking about. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12, and it says this. Sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. So likewise, husbands, for the Lord's sake, for his glory, for the promotion of his name, for the going out and the effectiveness of the gospel, live like this with your wives. So that's the likewise. So it's not exactly the same. So we, we would be foolish to say that to be a husband in this day and age, in Rome 65 AD, is exactly the same as being a wife. I think we'd also be foolish to say nowadays it's exactly the same to be a husband as it is to be a wife. So what he's saying is likewise, it's going to be hard, it's going to be inconvenient, it's going to be frustrating, uh, but for the Lord's sake, in the same way that I've just said live like this in these other relationships, husbands, you have to change the way you live for the Lord's sake, okay? We've made it through one word. Ready? Husbands. Clear enough. I don't need to talk about that. He's talking about husbands. Live with your wives. Live with your wives. Now, I'm stopping again. This might seem obvious to, to us. Where's the profoundness in this? I cannot tell you how profound these words are. Live with. And live with is in the Greek what's called a present active participle, which means continually living with, continually dwelling with, continually cohabitating with, continually having marital relations with, continually living in the same living quarters with your wife, your own wife. This was revolutionary. You don't see it now, do you? Maybe you do. It was so common and accepted and celebrated, as I said earlier, for husbands to frequently cheat on their wife. But they wouldn't even call it cheating. They were just saying they're getting out their urges. So brothels, prostitution were just a part of the society, celebrated. It was expected that the husband would often stay and sleep in the brothels, stay with his prostitute concubines, that adultery was not actually adultery for men. Of course, it was for women, but not for men. How could we expect them to control themselves? In fact, in Roman homes, particularly you know, nicer Roman homes, there was these private rooms called cubiculums. Cubiculums. Ever heard of this? These were private rooms for the husband and the wife. And it was expected that men would often have many different sexual partners staying with them in their private room. But of course, it was forbidden for the wife. Do you see this? And so we don't see it because we just sort of glaze by it. But when this letter was read, feel the conviction. Live with your wife. Cohabitate with your wife. Share living quarters with your wife. Let your wife be the only one that you have mar uh, marital relations with. If you don't know what marital relations is, you know, look it up. 
Okay. This was revolutionary, profound, a complete reordering of what was expected of men and husbands in particular. So live with your wives. Wow. How? In an understanding way. Well, that seems kind of lame. (laughs) In an understanding way. This too is profound. And this continues to be profound. Literally, the Greek here says, in knowledge of her. In knowledge of her. What does that mean? It means that your job as a husband is to know your wife. Everything about your wife. What she likes, what she dislikes, when she needs to eat, when she needs to sleep. You need to take the initiative to know everything about your wife. Now, do you think that was common to Peter's audience? That husbands would just long to know their wives so well? Based on everything that I've said about how wives were viewed? Of course not. Do you think even today that many people long to know to know their wives so well? No. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, talks about this same thing. He says, husbands, you should know your wife's body as if it were your own body. So that if you could Frankenstein and take off your head and put it on her head, you would have all the neural pathways so that you would know before, you, before she knows what's happening. That's the work you need to do for the rest of your life to try to figure out your wife, to try to know her, to try to feel what she's feeling, to actually hear when she speaks. Maybe I need to take a step back. Maybe I need to have a strong decision. Your job is to know your wife so well that it's like your head is on her body. Wives, would you like that? If your husband took the time and the energy and the persistence to get to know you like that? That's what Peter's saying. That's your job, husbands. You don't get to treat her like just a trophy, like just a helper, like just one of your servants, just the mother of your children. You get to treat her like she's the most precious thing in your life, and so you spend more time with her Thinking about her, studying her, observing her, listening to her, so that you know her physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually. You discover your wife, Peter says. Wow. I um, heard an example of this done well this week. I was talking to my friend, Ben Thompson, one of our leaders here at Sedaris. And uh, he was telling me that on uh, President's Day, um, him and his wife had it off, and their good friends, Augusta and Kurt, also have a young child, and Kurt had to work, and Augusta was at home, and Ben went over to Augusta's house. This is how I remember the story being told. <laughs> um, and, and Ben watched the two kids, one-year-old kids, by himself while the moms went out and had a lunch and I'm not sure, 
I'm not sure how long they were gone. It could have been hours. I hope it was hours. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, this is what I said to Ben. I said, was that your idea? <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's my idea. I said, Ben, that's, that's what I'm talking about this week. That's taking the initiative to understand your wife and know what she needs and then choose to sacrifice for her. Do you know how alien this would have been to these Roman men? Do you know how alien that is to American men? God was glorified when I heard Ben tell that story. Now, Ben's not a perfect man. No one's perfect. But that was a godly thing. So let's look at the next phrase. So live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, trigger. I'm triggered. My sisters are some of the strongest people I know. Kim, who went to be with the Lord and sent the message to us to consider. Strongest human being I've ever been around. Her will was so strong. So what is this? What are we talking about? The woman as the weaker vessel? What's going on? Now, you got to know the language. You got to study. This wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And in Greek, it would be really clear that this word, weaker, was referring to physical strength. And vessel always refers, when it's used in the Bible, to the body or to an instrument. So what he's saying is, hey, husbands, in most cases, this is almost nearly universally true, with very few exceptions, but there are some, that husbands tend to be physically stronger than their wives. Which is to say what? They have a kind of power over them. And they have to decide how they're going to use that power, that physical strength, to take advantage for selfish gain through intimidation or fear or abuse, or are you going to use your power in some other way? And Peter is saying so loudly and so clearly here that he only needs one verse, that you do not get to use your power for your own gain. I know it's been like this for most of human history. I know this is the way it is in the Roman Empire. But Peter says, not in a Christian marriage. No more. Instead of abusing your power, you will use your power to bless your wife. Now the only other potential nuance that I could see in this, because he's about to go on and talk about your wife being an heir, is legal power. It was true that men had legal power over their wives. We talked about that earlier. They probably also had financial power, meaning that they could intimidate their wives and say, you do what I say because I'm the one who has all the money, I'm the one that has all the legal power, and I'll take the kids if you don't do what I say. And Peter is saying, that's the state of affairs, that's the way it is in our society, they are in a vulnerable position, and you don't get to use your power for yourself. How is this not a message that we want to hear? So what should you do with your power? Or what you should you not do with your power? Now let's look at this, this, this little verb phrase, showing honor to the woman. Showing honor to the woman. 
knowing who she is because you're living with her in an understanding way. You're trying to know her so well, knowing who she is, knowing the limitations that she has physically or legally or financially. Don't do these things. Don't physically intimidate her. Don't verbally intimidate her by yelling louder than she can. Remember that she is a sister in Christ. And this is where I want to jump to verses 8 through 11, which are to all the church. These are the things he says to all the church. So if she is a co-heir, as we'll read in a second, with Christ, if she is a sister in Christ, then verses 8 through 11 are commands to the husbands towards their wives. This is what you should do with her. Verse 10, you should not let your tongue speak evil. Do you see it there? There should be no deceit coming from your lips towards your wife because she is a sister in Christ. Just as you would with all the other sisters in Christ in the church, to your wife you will speak with honor towards her. You will not slander her. Moreover, look at verse 9. You will not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When she speaks evil of you, when she says nasty things to you, you don't return venom with venom, husbands. You do what? Verse 8. You live with sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Jump down to verse 11. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That's what you're to do in your marriage, husbands. It doesn't matter what your wife says to you. This is what you're called to do. You do not return venom for venom. You do not raise your voice. You do not threaten her with any physical power you might have, any legal power you might have, any financial power, you do not use it no matter what she says to you. That is the command of Christ on your life. To be tender with brotherly love, with symphony, symphony, sympathy. <laughs> Create a symphony in your marriage. So that's what you don't do and, and, and it's not simply about not using your power in the ways that some men use their power. It's not enough just to not do that, to, to not use your power for selfish gain. There's a great start, but you actually then have to say, if I have this power, how can I use it to bless my wife? Do you see it in the text? Look back in verse 9. Do not pay, repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called. Bless. So it's not just about not using your power. It's about understanding your power and using it to bless her. Use your power, the power of your words, to bless your wife both, both privately and publicly. Bless her. Lift her up. Celebrate her. Tell the world how wonderful she is. Use your power of your strength to protect her, to make her feel safe and secure. Use your power financially to bless her. Are you listening? With nice gifts, fun experiences. Bless her. Use the power of your time to give her your attention, to give her priority, 
And I, had, I have to be honest, I struggle with this. And I told Ali, I said, Ali, I'm going to talk about being a husband, and I'm not always doing this. So I'm preaching to myself here. I have power in how I plan my day. I have power in the time I spend with my wife. Use my power to bless my wife. That's what Peter's saying to me. And you know what? As I was thinking about this, most of the guys in the room here that I know, I know most of you, we do a pretty good job of honoring our wives or the women that we love, the women that we share, um, consider cohort with or share life with. I don't hear a, a lot of bad examples of us not honoring or using our power or our anger to suppress. I, I don't hear a lot of that. We don't have like an overbearing problem in this church from what I can tell. But maybe my one challenge in this area is what I've just said. Using your power, using your privilege, using your uniqueness as a man, the unique qualities that God has given you to take initiative and lead the women that you love to higher plains and mountains of grace. That they might live lives more full because you choose not just to not use your power, but you use whatever power you have to bless them. Are you doing that? Or are you just trying to be a nice guy, not rock the boat? I was reading in the Seattle Times an article, um, and it was based on a study done by a popular dating site. It came out on Valentine's Day. I don't know if anybody saw it, but it said that Seattle ranked, not for the first time, <laughs> number one worst city in America to date. <laughs> number one worst city in America to date. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and here's what the study said. This was not a Christian study. This is about as secular as you get. And it said this, men, or, uh, women are saying about men, they're too passive. It's terrible to date in the city. The men are so passive. And here's what the men are saying about the women. The men are saying, the women are too aggressive. I can't make this stuff up. Peter has already said this. Peter said this 2,000 years ago. What did he say? He said, spiritual beauty the way men respond to spiritual beauty of a woman results when a wife patiently invites and enables her husband to, to lead, to, to, to not be passive. That's what Peter's saying in 1 through 6. And then in verse 7, Peter's already said this, spiritual handsomeness, spiritual handsomeness, what attracts a woman to a man results when the husband takes initiative to know his wife, to learn his wife, to honor his wife, to bless his wife. And 2,000 years later, Seattle's the worst city to date in in America. Because nobody's listening to Peter. He's already said it. Now, how do we do that? We've got to figure this out. Now, let me just say this really quick. We are all weak in some way. We are all weak in some way. Men and women have weakness. But often our weaknesses are different. And Christ has found each and every one of us in our weakness. He's found us. He's loved us. He's honored us by saving us. Henry David Thoreau famously said, the, the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation. Men 
have weaknesses, women. We are terribly insecure. We lack any confidence to take initiative and lead in the ways that we know deep down we should. To lead in the household, to lead spiritually, to lead our wives and our children. We struggle. We, we feel so weak, but we don't feel like we can show the emotion or the weakness because we fear it might consume us. And so we hide it. So, Peter has talked about how husbands can honor their wives in their particular weakness. Let me just ask this of wives. What would it mean for you, wife, to see your husband's weakness and to love and honor him in that weakness? What would that look like? Wives, how can you protect your husband from the demons of his own feelings of inadequacy? You see, throughout this, Peter has been talking about weakness. Not just in this part to husbands, about the wives. He's been referencing weakness all along. That we all find ourselves in some weakness. And it's the job of a spouse that truly fears the Lord, loves the Lord, loves their husband or their wife, to expose and then attach themselves to that place of weakness, that spot, so that when the two become one flesh, the weaknesses are protected and the unity might raise up to security and successfulness in marriage. See that? So you have to identify the weakness, and that's where you attach at the hip. Around weakness. So that together you find strength. And together you might honor Christ in your marriage. What does that look like for husbands and for wives? Now, finally it says this. You should do this because they are, your wives, heirs with you of the grace of life. This is also so profound. Another cryptic bombshell by Peter. Men, your inheritance is as much hers as it is yours. Wait, what? In God's eyes, you are equal in every way. She is as much of a living stone as you are in the family of God. She is just as royal as you are in the family of God. She is just as wise and full of the Spirit as you are. She is just as much a citizen of God's kingdom as you are. So honor her as a fellow heir. She is equal in every way as you are. Her weaknesses might be different, but she is equal in every way. I just love the Apostle Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. I think we have that. Throw that up there, Augusta. And I'll just, just read it along with me. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He's talking about the church family. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, the, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weaker, seem to be, are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's the beauty of the family of God. So what might seem to be one way, and God's family is not that way. And then finally, he finishes. 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. If being like Jesus isn't enough for you husbands to love your wives in this way, then Peter says, just so you know, here's a not-so-subtle warning, that the sharpness of your tongue, the weightiness of your tone, the way you treat or exercise your power over your wife, it is like a two-edged sword. And if you do not live with honor and care and love and tenderness for her, that same sword that you're using to chop her down will sever your tie to the Father, and he will no longer listen to your prayer. Peter is serious about this. This is not weakness towards the husband or giving them the easy way out. These are hard words. Anyone you have power over, anyone you have authority over, use that power very, very carefully. Now, a word of warning. Having said all of that, even if you use your power or authority to honor and to bless your wife or others, I just need to tell you, it won't always be reciprocated. At times, people will see it as weakness and they'll use it against you because it does take two to tango. Your wife and others, they have a choice to make too. If they want to give you respect and honor in return, and they may choose instead to attack you, to revile you. How do I know this? I know this because just as we read at the beginning, right? Guess who was sitting at the table with the 12 who got his feet washed by Jesus? Judas, the one who later that night sold out his master, his teacher, his Lord for a little bit of money. You live this way not because of the results or the way you get loved back. You live this way because this is how God loved you. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Husbands and wives. And in this larger section that we're closing out now, I just, I just thinking about this week, I just realized a great definition for sin is this. The abuse of power and the abuse of freedom. How will you use your power? How will you use your freedom? And in this sense, men and women sin against each other and sin against God. And we should all try to be like Jesus, never abusing our freedom and never abusing our power against God or against humanity. And this will take some serious soul searching. This will take us trying to understand where we have power and where we have freedom and how we are using it and in particular, how we're using it in a marriage covenant. And if we do this, and if we live this way, we will begin to display for the world kinds of relationships and kinds of interaction with power and freedom that are revolutionary. We owe so much to these words and this book. It has literally brought us to a place that we should be proud of where men and women are honored in our society, where husbands and wives have equal power and freedom. We should celebrate that, but we should not forget where it came from. It came in part from the words of Peter, this challenge to us to live like Jesus. And I'll close just by saying this. 
as you seek to live in these honorable ways towards one another, you will fall short of the glory of God. And when you do, not if, but when you do, just remember that you have a Savior and turn to him and ask him to give you grace and mercy and then the power to be better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Peter. We can't imagine what our society would look like if it weren't for these words, if it weren't for these revolutionary challenges for husbands to love their wives in a truly, truly radical way. Uh, God, I just pray now that your spirit would take all of these words said uh, and that it would just stir in our hearts and the things that are of you, uh, that those things would just stick and begin to churn and begin to speak to us and actually move us, move us towards action and maybe changing the way that we relate and love our wives um, or prepare us if, if we have a desire to be a husband. Uh, God, I pray for the wives in the room and the, and the single women who desire marriage, God, that you would begin to prepare them and help them understand what to look for in a husband and uh, do the work in their own lives to be ready to see that when that person comes uh, across their path and they would truly see a man like First Peter 7 as um, handsome and, um, and we just, uh, we need help in that. So we pray all these things. Uh, we thank you for the blood of Jesus uh, that covers over a multitude of sins um, because we know we fall short in this time and time again. Um, so we just ask forgiveness now in Jesus' name. Amen.